Hello, you are listening to the All Girls School podcast. I'm your host, Victoria Barrett, a graduate from an all-women's college in Virginia. This podcast aims to highlight the diverse experiences and life journeys of graduates from all women's colleges. Listeners can expect to hear candid conversations about a wide variety of topics. This podcast strives to be in an inclusive space, so some guests may identify themselves as non-binary or trans. I hope you're ready because class is about to start. All right. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the All Girls School podcast. I'm Victoria Barrett, your host. I'm really excited this week because I have a special guest, another Mary Baldwin alum, but a very unique perspective that I'm really excited about because most everyone that I've talked to has gone to Mary Baldwin around the same time that I did. So I'm excited to speak with my next guest, which is the only time I'll call you by your first name. The rest of the time, I just can't say anything else besides Colonel Patrick, but this is Melissa Patrick. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you agreeing to take the time to sit down with me. Well, thank you for inviting me, and it's my pleasure to, to be with you today. Awesome. So you are someone who I've looked up to for a long time. You came in as our deputy commandant at the VWIL program, which for anyone who's been listening to this podcast, that's the Virginia Women's Institute for Leadership, which is a um, Corps of Cadets program at Mary Baldwin University now, previously Mary Baldwin College at the time that I attended and also when you attended. And then I'm also excited to get your perspective because you attended Mary Baldwin and graduated in the late 70s, correct? Correct. Okay. Class of 78. Nice. I thought it was 78, but I couldn't quite remember. So, yeah. but yeah, so I'm excited to hear what your experience was like when you attended versus when I attended, see what things have been the same, what have might have changed over the years as well. Because I know just in the time since I've graduated, there have been a lot of changes at Mary Baldwin. But first, if you're okay with it, I kind of want to like go back in time. I always do this with every guest to kind of make them think about where they started. So if you don't mind helping everyone get to know you a little better, do you mind sharing like where you grew up and kind of what you were like before you went to Mary Baldwin? What were your interests and goals in life? Sure. Well, I grew up mostly in, here in Stanton, Virginia. We moved here when I was 10. Okay. My father was a chemist, and he came to take over as the chairman of the chemistry department at Mary Baldwin. So, you know, from the time I was 10, I was here in Stanton and coming and going on the Mary Baldwin campus. Mm -hmm. You know, I basically grew up at Mary Baldwin as well as being a student there in college. It's been long enough ago. I'm not sure <laughs> that I really can remember what my goals were <laughs> before I went to Mary Baldwin. I will say this from a very early uh, point in my life, mm -hmm. I was fascinated by military things. Mm -hmm. I liked military history. I read a lot of biographies of generals and and histories of, of battles and things like that. My father would take all of us to the battlefields here in Virginia, of which we have many. And I was fascinated by all of that. But, you know, that was in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And so ROTC was not open to women at the time. And it, it, it was something I was very interested in, but I really didn't know how to get into the military, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a youngster. I remember as a kid, I would go to the local library and they had a couple of books in the library. They were coffee table books, one on Annapolis and one on the military academy at West Point. And I would take those books out and flip through them. I was fascinated by them. And I don't think I ever really focused on the fact that there were no women in them at mm -hmm. all, you know. But I was fascinated by the uniforms, by the marching, and, and all that sort of thing. So that was a, a very early interest of mine. Awesome. Yeah. So you have a unique perspective of where you grew up in Stanton, for the, for the most part, since you were 10. Your dad was a professor. 
at Mary Baldwin. And so did you have any other choice in colleges besides Mary Baldwin? Would you have been able to have gone anywhere else if you had wanted to? I think the reality was that I did not. My parents, and <laughs> my parents were very clever. Yeah. <laughs> so when I was in high school, I thought that I was going to have some flexibility about mm-hmm. where I would go to college. And we had taken a trip to Charleston, and I had fallen in love with the College of Charleston, mm. not because I knew anything academic about it or what have you, but just the architecture and all yeah. that sort of thing and the history of it. And so I announced to my parents that I was going to the College of Charleston. <laughs> and, and they said, okay, but you need to, you have to go to Mary Baldwin for your freshman year. Mm-hmm. Try it out. And then if you need to transfer, you can transfer. Well, my parents, they knew exactly what they were doing. <laughs> so I went to Mary Baldwin. I started as a day student, actually, for the first year and a half and then moved on campus. And once I had started at Mary Baldwin, I never really looked back or looked elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where yeah. I went. When you moved on to campus, uh, where what residential hall did you live in? Is it still one that's here now? It's Oh. Um, I initially lived in South Bailey, and my senior year, I was in North Bailey, and both of the Baileys were torn down and replaced Mm -hmm. by the Peg Building. So the Peg Building is built basically on the footprint of the North and South Bailey dorms, but they're gone. Yeah. I also lived in Hilltop my junior year. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I... I do know there's been some changes, but yeah, I'm ch- even I wouldn't know what that have, would have looked like because the Peg Building has been here since right. I attended. So yeah, it's interesting to think about how much it's even changed since then and buildings that were there back in the 70s and then aren't here anymore. Because I was just walking around campus this morning mm-hmm. and I was noticing some changes nothing major but new signage and they've moved campus security around the campus store is now in the first floor of hunt when it used Mm. to be back by closer to the president's house the i don't know why i'm forgetting in in panel or panel however you say that yeah. building. that building was built long after I left so I don't even yeah, know how to pronounce so, it <laughs> yeah so it even now it's been some changes and, and things mm-hmm. like that so yeah uh, that's kind of cool I wish I I wish I could see like a picture and see what it looked like then but so going back to your experience at Mary Baldwin What was it like? Were there any traditions maybe that took place back then that don't necessarily happen anymore? Or are there still a lot of the same traditions? What did you end up studying when you were there? If you could just kind of tell me what it was like at Mary Baldwin in the 70s. I'm like fascinated to hear (laughs) what it was like. Well, when I look back on it, it, it's a very pleasant memory, kind of idyllic. I'm not sure that I felt that way as I was going through as a student. But anyway, uh, many of the traditions, I think, are uh, similar to what you have now. Apple Day, of course. Yes. Um, although Apple Day was different mm-hmm. in the 70s. Uh, y'all now have the carnival mm-hmm. on campus. And other than the busload of students that go out and do apple gleaning in the mm-hmm. morning, it's all on campus. Whereas... For us, it was all off campus. We mm. would go out to an orchard that was out on Bell's Lane on the edge of town. And we walked or we hitchhiked out there, which nowadays, you know, <laughs> nobody would do yeah. that. Uh, but anyway, we would go out there and, and do all the games and have the picnic out there and oh. things like that. But there was no carnival. There was nothing like that. Yeah. So that was Apple Day. One of the traditions that... I don't know how long it lasted, but it's long gone, was mm-hmm. sophomore show. Mm-hmm. And the sophomore class would uh, put on a, a Broadway musical, basically. My class did mm-hmm. Bye Bye Birdie. Oh. So they were really uh, 
significant, you know, Broadway musicals, which meant that people had to sing these songs <laughs> and, and so forth. I was not in the cast. I was, oh, I, 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 that I was, was about to be my next question. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, is, <laughs> I, I don't have much of an acting career at all. <laughs> I helped with the sets. <laughs> but it was a great way of making the class come together yeah. because it was this major production. Mm -hmm. And at some point after, you know, we all graduated and left, that tradition went away. Yeah. And I could see why that would be the case because it took a tremendous amount of time mm -hmm. and, you know, competed with schoolwork and yeah, things like that. That's true. But I, I also think it's kind of too bad that, mm -hmm. that there isn't something like that to bring a class together. Yeah. I would also say Apple Day in my time was, it was not on the schedule. So now everyone knows when Apple Day is. It's part of the academic mm. calendar. But um, it used to be that it was a big secret when it was going to happen. Uh -huh. And the sophomore class was responsible for picking that date. And they kept it a, a secret. And then the night before Apple Day, they would, the sophomores mm -hmm. would burst into the dining hall. We had sit-down meals at mm. that time, family-style meals. And they would burst into this dining hall yelling, it's Apple Day, it's Apple Day. And everybody's all excited because we had no classes the next day. So that's also a, a, a big change. So it could have been like any day of the week? It could have been any day of the week. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's actually really cool. I'm kind of mm -hmm. jealous. That seems like a lot of fun. I don't remember clearly <laughs> back that far, but I have a sneaking suspicion that the class advisor had a fair amount to do with guiding mm. the class into picking the date yeah. so that it fell on an appropriate academic day yeah. and, and so forth. But anyway, that that was an added dimension to Apple Day, that, that sense mm -hmm. of anticipation. Everybody knew it was coming up because it always happened in the fall, obviously, with mm -hmm. apples. But... You didn't know for sure, and maybe you had a test that was scheduled or something like that, and, and you were, you know... Hoping. Hoping, praying that <laughs> Apple Day would, would pop you. up. Yeah, right. That's for fun. That's right. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. I understand why they schedule it now, but I think, right. I think that in itself yeah. is, like, really unique, and maybe, I mean... I like it sounds like a cool tradition in the anticipation. I think sounds like a lot of fun. It almost kind of reminds me of V will traditions in a way, not necessarily. Well, maybe kind of like breakout. You never know when it's going to be. So there's always mm -hmm. like that anticipation. Obviously, you know, that's going to be in the spring. But mm -hmm. yeah, kind of reminiscent to that, to not knowing when it's going to happen, but knowing it's going to happen. That's pretty exciting. So, yeah, yeah. It's definitely interesting to hear the ways things have stayed the same but have changed um, in their own way. Right. What did you study when you were at Mary Baldwin? I was a history major. History? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really have an area of focus. You know, mm -hmm. I just liked history. And so I was a history major. My father, you know, head of the chemistry department, I did not take chemistry. <laughs> yeah, that was my next question. Did you have to take it as a, you know, gen ed requirement? Well, it's interesting because during my time at Mary Baldwin, they really didn't have gen ed requirements the way mm -hmm. they do now. Higher education went through a phase. Of course, yeah. all colleges are competing with each other. And mm -hmm. so they went through a phase where to attract students, they didn't want to have too many requirements. Yeah. And so we were only required to take a course or two within the various disciplines. I, I can't mm -hmm. remember whether it was one or two. But so I was required to take a science course, mm -hmm. but not necessarily biology yeah. or chemistry. And I think that that actually was unfortunate, that we should have had more structure than what we did have. Mm -hmm. I think that when you're 18, 19 years old, you're trying to put together your academic program mm -hmm. and you you really don't know 
yeah. what you want to be. You might think you know, but next week yeah. it changes and you have mm-hmm. a different thing. And I, I think that actually a foundation of core courses and so on is important. And, mm-hmm. and I kind of wish that we had had that, but we didn't. Yeah. Because if you have a foundation of core courses, you might take a course that you wouldn't have originally planned to take and maybe realize that that's something you're really interested in and want to pursue. Because I know I started out with the idea of going pre-med and doing an educational delay with the Army, but quickly learned after taking chemistry. It wasn't biology. I liked biology. It was chemistry. I was like, oh can I keep going with this? Uh, Will it be fun? Probably not. So then, but I took a really fun comparative politics course with Dr. Bowen and that kind of swayed me to switch to international relations. And then I had a minor in history and anthropology and leadership studies through VWIL. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely agree with you to where I think having those courses are helpful because I'm, I mean, if if there wasn't a requirement, I might not have taken that class and I might not have changed my major. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Well, and there are a couple of things that when I was a college student, I couldn't be bothered with <laughs> that now I look back at and I really regret not taking them. Art history mm-hmm. would be one. Music appreciation would be another one. And Shakespeare, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I just... I couldn't have cared less about those. And now I feel like I'm not really a very well-educated person (laughs) in certain areas Mm -hmm. because I didn't take any of those courses. And as, as you know, from being in the army, you travel a lot, Mm -hmm. you wind up going in lots of museums and things like that. And I don't know what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage anybody to Mm -hmm. take courses like that, even if it doesn't fit within, you know, what you think you want to do. Mm-hmm. But I didn't figure that out until years later. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I definitely think even now there's so many things that I'm interested in. It's like how do you choose one thing? It's so I right. I definitely get that. Right. But I guess you said initially you didn't know the route to going in the army. How did did that change while you were still in college or was it after college? While I was in college. So I went to Mary Baldwin a year early. Mm -hmm. I didn't graduate from high school. And (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was in a hurry, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I had this idea that I could graduate from college when I was, I think, 19, you know, by taking summer school classes Mm -hmm. And with my dad being a professor at Mary Baldwin, I could use tuition exchange for going to summer school at VMI. Hmm. And so that's what I did between my freshman and sophomore year. And so VMI at that time was all male Mm -hmm. during the academic year, but the summer school was open to women. Hmm. And so I signed up for a number of military history courses, one of them being history of warfare. And it was taught by Marine veteran of the Pacific campaigns in World War II. He clearly had a little bit of shell shock from that, not surprising, and so forth. And he looks at me in his class. He never had a girl in his class. (laughs) And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I really like this stuff. You know, (laughs) this is what I want to study. And he said, well, you need to be in ROTC. And I said, I can't. It's close to women. And he said, no, they opened ROTC to women a year or two ago. And he took me to Kilburn Hall. And I went around to the different ROTC departments in Kilburn Hall. And in each one, I asked them, what do women do in your service? Hmm. And at that time, most of the services limited women to administrative functions. The Mm -hmm. Marines, for example, you Mm -hmm. could just do admin. The Air Force, you could do a broader range of things, but you couldn't fly. There were no women pilots. The Navy, women couldn't go to sea on any of the ships at that time. And for me, uh, the Air Force and the Navy, the heart of them 
mm-hmm. are, you know, the, the aircraft and the ships and yeah. so forth. So I, I kind of ruled those out. And I felt like the Army gave me the greatest range of, of options of what I could do. So I signed up for Army ROTC. So I took ROTC, the, the first year of it, that summer school mm-hmm. at VMI. And I like to tell people I'm the first woman to take ROTC at VMI because it's the literal truth. <laughs> but at the end of the summer school, then I could not return to VMI mm. to continue taking ROTC. They wouldn't have me in their class during the academic year. So I went to Blue Ridge Community College for a year and then the last two years at James Madison. So that's how I pursued getting a commission. Okay. So that's mm-hmm. years before Vivo mm-hmm. or anything like that. So after you graduated, what is what was your career in the Army like? Well, I was commissioned at graduation from Mary Baldwin, and my branch was military intelligence. Mm-hmm. Actually, on my orders that I received at the time, and it, it actually says Women's Army Corps, the wax still existed on paper until October, I think, of 1978. So technically, I was a whack, even though I never did anything with the wax. But anyway, military intelligence was my detailed branch. And so I went to Fort Huachuca for officer basic course. And from there, I was assigned as a battalion S2 in an air defense battalion and approved hawk battalion at Fort Bliss. Did that for a couple of years. Got bored, so I volunteered <laughs> for Korea. <laughs> Did a, a tour in Korea. And then I didn't want to go. I was scheduled to go to the captain's career course, but I, I didn't want to go back to school that quickly, you know. Mm-hmm. So I volunteered for Fort Bragg. And so I was assigned to 18th Airborne Corps, and I started jumping out of airplanes and, and so forth. And I did that for three years and, and got my master parachute mm-hmm. in the course of doing it. Did they send you to airborne school before you got there or once you got there? Or were you already airborne qualified? I went to jump school in between officer basic and oh. going to my first assignment. Oh, that's nice. Did mm-hmm. you have to compete for it or was there no ML or anything? Because I, I guess these days it's not as easy to get airborne slots unless you do it as a cadet or typically, I, I know at least from my experience, most people who get assigned to airborne units now already are jump qualified through like when their time as a cadet or they have to get the there's a competition or an OML type situation in order to get slots to airborne or air assault. Yeah. I don't, I don't really remember that. Mm -hmm. What I, what I do remember is that when I was at ROTC summer camp, advanced camp, and I wasn't airborne qualified, there were, I think six women in our platoon, something like that. And one of them had been to jump school before she went to summer camp. And I noticed everybody treated her differently mm-hmm. and with much greater respect. And I felt, I want to wear my respect on my chest. Yeah. You know, so at the first opportunity, I volunteered for, for jump school. And I don't really remember what the, what the policies were at the mm-hmm. time. But anyway, I was able to go before I reported for my first assignment. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I imagine, especially at the time when you commissioned and started your career, I mean, airborne today is still held in like a higher esteem, I feel like, but I'm, I'm sure back then trying to prove yourself as well, considering there's probably a lot less women entering the army at that time, mm-hmm. you did kind of have to have a chip on your shoulder and, you know, going to airborne school and making it through the three weeks there. If it was three weeks, then I don't know if it was different. It was three, weeks. still three weeks. I managed um, to make it four weeks, but yes, it was definitely, I think having, you know, the airborne wings does like kind of prove yourself in a way to people who might, right. you know, look 
down on women in the army. Right. Kind of have to fight a little bit harder to to gain respect, I'm assuming, based mm-hmm. on when you entered the army. Right. Well, when I entered the army, 5% of the officer corps was women. Mm-hmm which is much less than it is now. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure what the percentage is now, but it's certainly a lot more than that. And and you did run into all kinds of attitudes. And people were not shy about expressing their opinions back Mm -hmm. then. My first assignment, so this is after I had, had completed jump school, but my first assignment in the Air Defense Battalion, they had only opened air defense up to women within six months before I arrived there. Mm-hmm. I was assigned to that battalion only because there was one other female lieutenant in the battalion. And and so they put the two of us in the same battalion. And there was a female lieutenant on the group staff. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. With, well, basically a brigade mm-hmm. in terms of women officers. And so I got all kinds of of commentary <laughs> about whether I belonged or not, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and so you did have to fight for respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel like even now, even when I was on active duty, one of my first couple of assignments, I moved to a forward support company with the cab, and for a long time, I was the only female leader in that battalion or squadron because and I would have to for you your analysis I would actually have to have someone come from another unit and observe me because I was the only E5 and above in in my entire squadron so Mm. that was kind of crazy but definitely I feel like my experience was as long as I was getting my squadron the support they needed I never really got any rude comments or anything and Mm -hmm. it was nice because as I like progressed there were more women that came into the unit there was another female lieutenant that came in and other like NCOs that came into the unit but Mm -hmm. even even now like depending on what units you go to you can still end up being like one of the only women at the Mm -hmm. table yeah I'm sure um so yeah and we've come a long way, but there's still instances where it, right. it's still like that. Right. Well, yeah. and women, I think, will always be a minority yes. within the military. And what we do in the military is fundamentally a masculine thing, mm-hmm. you know? So if you want to, if you're a woman and you want to pursue a career in the military, Mm-hmm. Those are some realities that yeah. you need to accept mm-hmm. and need to be prepared to deal with. Did you feel, because I, I feel like there's some stereotypes or criticisms towards women's colleges and women who attend that if you attend a women's college, you're not going to know how to interact with male counterparts once you're out in the real world. How do you feel about that particular statement, especially as both of us have entered career fields where it was male-dominated? Do you feel like you had to adjust, or was it not really that hard of an adjustment, going from like an environment of being surrounded by women in college to being in a work environment where you're pretty much surrounded by the majority of men? I feel almost the opposite, that going to a women's college, the advantage of going to a women's college is that it, it builds self-confidence and self-esteem among women. You cannot hide in the corners mm-hmm. while audacious young men dominate mm-hmm. the conversation, take over the student government and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. You are are built up to believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that then going out and competing with men, you actually have an advantage. That's not true in all cases, of Mm -hmm. course. But I think that for me anyway, it was very beneficial to have gone to a woman's college. I was very shy as a youngster. 
typically would would kind of hold back on anything. I'm also an extreme introvert. So mm-hmm. I have to think hard about what I want to say before mm-hmm. I open my mouth and things like that. And what I gained from going to a women's college, from being a Mary Baldwin graduate, was this sense of self-confidence and a sense that I had been very well prepared. Mm-hmm. I was proud of Mary Baldwin. and I was proud of my Mary Baldwin education. I felt that on an academic or an intellectual level, I could compete with anybody. Mm-hmm. And so I think that stood me in good stead. Yeah. And, and I think that helped me in my Army career. The other thing is that while Mary Baldwin is small and mm-hmm. we tend to think it's not very well known, and that's that's true in parts <laughs> of the country, Mary Baldwin, sometimes you'd be surprised yeah. at people who have heard of Mary Baldwin. And the fact that VMI is right down the road mm-hmm. helps because there are a lot of officers who are VMI graduates mm-hmm. and they're familiar with Mary Baldwin. Yeah. And so at least in my time, there was no V-Will, so they weren't mm-hmm. familiar with that. But when they found out that I was a Mary Baldwin graduate, they had respect for the school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I feel like the creation of a program like V-Will only positively contributed to the point that you just made, to where the core itself... And even Mary Baldwin, because I have sister Knowles who participated in student government and had opportunities for for leadership there. It does just give you opportunities. And sometimes that's all you need is the opportunity to be put in those positions to grow and develop yourself as a leader and help build that confidence. Whereas, you know, if, if you did go to a co-ed institution or even just a larger institution as well, you might not have jumped on those opportunities or taken those opportunities and really learned, you know, what you're capable of. So I do agree. I, I, I think there's a, a place um, for women's colleges. So is there any other points of your military background or career that you're very proud of or that kind of stood out to you before you ended up retiring? Yeah, I think so. I stayed in the Army for 28 years, and so I retired at the rank of colonel. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to be a Division G2, which is the senior intelligence officer in a division. That's what a G2 is. So you're running all of the intelligence operations in that division. And the division that I was the G2 for was 1st Armored Division, and we deployed to Bosnia at the end of the Bosnian War. So our mission was to go in and implement the peace agreement, the Dayton Accords. And it was, there there was a a lot of focus on that mission. It was a high visibility mission. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the only war going on at the time in 1995. Our division had been reinforced by brigades that came from the Corps. So the division actually had about 25,000 troops in it which is, is, that's a big division. Mm -hmm. And we had a sector that also had a Russian brigade in it. It was the first combined U.S.-Russian operation since the end of the Cold War. And we had several other multinational forces there as well, the Turks and uh, a Nordic brigade as well. And so to find yourself as the, the chief intel person for an operation like that. That was a really big deal. We were augmented with liaison teams from the various national agencies, all of those three-letter agencies (laughs) and so forth. And I was in a position where I could reach out to, you know, the top of the CIA or the top of the NSA if I needed to. So that was a pretty big deal. And I'm I'm proud of, of having had that opportunity. Later... After I'd been promoted to colonel, I was the senior intelligence officer 
in Bosnia once again, but this time for the stabilization force. So I was responsible not only for U.S. intelligence operations, but also NATO intelligence operations as well for the entire country of Bosnia. And then my last deployment was to Afghanistan, and that was in 2005. And I was the senior intelligence officer for the NATO forces in Afghanistan at that time. So ISAF, the, um, what was that? Implementation, no, I'm sorry, the International Security Assistance Forces. Several years later, ISAF kind of morphed from being a NATO command to being a U.S.-led command. Mm -hmm. And and the senior intelligence officer then became a a general officer. But when I was there, they felt a colonel could do it. (laughs) So that was was kind of the, the apex of my military career. Yeah. And that's a that's a huge responsibility, especially in the very early onset of the war in Afghanistan. So, yeah, the and five I think was a significant period of time because, you know, when the United States went into Afghanistan after nine one one, at the end of two thousand one, the first couple of months of two thousand two, we destroyed the Taliban. We totally Mm -hmm. destroyed the Taliban. We drove Mm -hmm. them out of Pakistan. They were completely demoralized and and broken up as a military force. Mm -hmm. But they had Pakistan as their safe haven, and so they could start reconstituting. And 2005 is about when the Taliban started coming back into Afghanistan. They they had been trying to all along. But yeah. in 2005, while I was there, there was actually a, a period of time where they were successful in the Southwest in capturing a district capital and holding it for about 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, U.S. air power completely obliterated that force yeah. afterwards and so forth. But that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. It was it was a big deal for the Taliban, but it also was a tremendous shocker for the Afghan government mm-hmm. that they were able to do that. And so that's kind of the period of time you start seeing the Taliban flexing its muscles a little bit, ramping up and so forth, leading to much larger operations mm-hmm. and much higher casualty rates and so on mm-hmm. later on. Yeah. Um, so when did you retire and what did you do after retirement? Well, I retired in 2006 and as is typical for lots of Intel professionals, (laughs) I became a contractor for the army for about five years. And I worked over in, in the Charlottesville area on a project where we were collecting data and analyzing it on every attack against U.S. armored vehicles. What we were trying to do was analyze the effects of different types of weapons against the armor packages. Mm -hmm. And that project was designed to obviously improve the protection on our armored vehicles. And some of the work that we did is what led the chief of staff of the Army at that time to make the decision to replace the Humvees with MRAPs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was a multi-billion dollar purchase. Mm -hmm. And it really was based on the analysis that my team did. And so even though I was no longer on active duty and I was a contractor, I'm very, very proud of that work because Mm -hmm. I feel like that work probably led to saving the lives of countless U.S. military personnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way really of, of calculating yeah. how many lives were saved as a result of it, but there's no question that lots of lives were saved. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm very proud of that. Basically, we made one briefing slide. You know how you have to <laughs> brief High-level guys, you know, one One, briefing slide slide. that that showed the picture, and he made a decision to pull all the Humvees out and replace them with Mm -hmm. MRAPs. That is something very much to be proud of, because that, yeah, that's most units now. You can't go into a unit without having an MRAP in it. That's right. Yeah. And then I think we 
are rolling in another new vehicle as well. I should know what it is, but now that I'm in the reserves, I guess I'm not as in the know because I don't have to deal with um, equipment and maintenance uh, like I used to. (laughs) But I know they just did a pretty big purchase for a new set of vehicles that are rolling out into the force. But so eventually you find your way back to Stanton. So what brought you back to Stanton after contracting? Because it, it seems like you weren't very far. Or well, were you actually, still living I was here in Stanton. Stanton. Oh, okay. I was living, living in Stanton, Stanton and Stanton. I was driving over the mountain okay. every day. <coughs> Basically, it was my parents mm-hmm. that brought me back here. I was planning on staying to my mandatory retirement date at 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I was in Germany, enjoying Germany and all yeah. that sort of thing. And whenever I would talk to my mom, my mom would say, now tell me again, when are you planning on retiring? <laughs> and at first I thought that was a serious question. And, and then I figured out, no, she's actually sending you a message. She wants you to come home. Yeah. So... I submitted my retirement paperwork at that point, and the Army said, no, you're going to Afghanistan instead. (laughs) And so after I completed that Afghan tour, then I retired and I came back home. And I, at the time, I thought, well, I'll come back, you know, to help my parents as they're aging. They were in their upper 80s, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, but I've traveled the world. I've seen Mm -hmm. lots of great, places and so forth I'm not quite sure where I want to you know settle for my retirement home but you know I'll I'll figure it out and I'll go there (coughs) excuse me and then after I'd been back here in Stanton really for a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. I realized I'm home Mm -hmm. and I'm not leaving yeah I like this little place my parents have since passed on and so forth but but I'm I'm very happy here instead. And then you did some contracting work, but eventually you find your way back to working at Mary Baldwin as our deputy commandant um, for the VWL for the VWL program. What was that experience like for you, especially knowing, as you said earlier, you were technically the first woman to attend a class at VMI and then now be the deputy commandant of a program at the school that you graduated from, which now has all of these cadets participating in ROTC at VMI, which you weren't allowed to do. How, does, how did that feel coming back to, to work for the program? You know, VWIL was something that I followed with great interest since before it was was even officially stood up. Mm-hmm. When Mary Baldwin was first talking about a VWIL-like program as part of the state of Virginia's court case mm-hmm. and so forth. And when I would come home on leave, I would drop in and visit with President Cynthia Tyson yep. at that time. Mm-hmm. And we would talk about the importance of a program and how it would fit within Mary Baldwin and, and so forth. So. I had followed with great interest. I kept in touch with General Bissell Mm -hmm. and knew him, as well as with Dr. Brenda Bryant. And so when Dr. Bryant's health was declining and General Bissell's health was declining, then they reached out to me and they asked me to come on board. And I think really Mm -hmm. what they wanted was somebody who could serve kind of as a transition figure Mm -hmm. because nobody knew for sure when General Bissell would retire. (laughs) (laughs) And and nobody really knew what the outcome was going to be with Dr. Bryant. Mm -hmm. But it was clear that there were going to be changes in, in the program and that there needed to be some kind of leadership on hand that could serve to enable that transition to happen. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, was kind of my function when I, when I came here. And I learned a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I came at it with a certain 
leadership style that I had developed and refined throughout my 28 years in the Army and so forth. And actually, even though I only had about six months with Dr. Bryant before Mm -hmm. she passed away, I changed a lot in terms of how I approached leadership with with you folks. (laughs) Based on observing her and talking to Mm -hmm. her and so forth. Y'all may have thought that I was a little bit of a hard ass. I don't know. (laughs) No. not. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) But I actually realized that in working with the cadets at at the stage of development that y'all were at, Mm -hmm. that I needed to be a lot more positive a lot more encouraging mm-hmm. than I probably would have been had you been my lieutenants yeah. in the active army. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, from your own experience in the army, you have a mission. It has yeah. to be accomplished. You know, it's, yes, there's some mentorship and development that happens as mm-hmm. you go, but that's not the primary purpose. Yeah. The primary purpose, though, at Vewell was development, mentorship, mm-hmm. and so forth. And so I had to make an adjustment, and I didn't really realize that when I first came on board, and then I, I figured it out. So, And I don't know that that adjustment was necessarily obvious to, <laughs> to, to any of the cadets <laughs> dealing with me, but, but I did make that adjustment, and I give Dr. Bryant in particular a lot of credit mm-hmm. for that. She never sat me down and said, oh, you have to change your leadership style or anything like that. But it was just in our interactions that that I came to appreciate that. I also felt that maintaining standards was very, very important. Mm -hmm. I didn't see much point in being in a program like V-Will if the standards were not standards but were flexible, Mm -hmm. you know, and and so I know that I pushed some of you all to meet certain standards, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and you'll remember this probably very clearly. I felt, <laughs> you know, if you have a uniform mm-hmm. and the standards for the uniform are specified in the record, yeah, yeah, in the record, then you follow it, mm-hmm. you know. And if the record says that you don't do this or that you do do that, then you should do it Mm -hmm. or not do it, you know? And even if it was easier to just kind of not notice, kind of look the other way, say, oh, you know, what's the big deal? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I felt, I still feel like that it's actually, it, it undermines it undermines discipline if you just kind of turn and look away. Mm-hmm. You know, that having rules and regulations that are not enforced, are act- that's actually worse than not having them in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. so I pushed you guys on, on mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Yeah, I know you used to inspect, do our room inspections, and we knew that you were very consistent about it. And honestly, if you got away with maybe only one or two demerits, that was like a win on an <laughs> inspection from you. You were like, oh, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> Did a good job. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like as having been a teacher, having some teaching experience as well, I think there, when, especially when we're in that point of view to where we're the one that is the student or the cadet being mentored in that circumstance. We, yes, complain about the discipline and things like that, but at the end of the day, we end up appreciating the teachers that are tough on us as well as any type of mentor Mm -hmm. that, you know, is tough on us and holds us to that standard because it's only going to prepare us and make us better once we're out in the real world. But I do, I can understand why you had to adjust, not completely change, but yes, adjust your style. Because I interviewed Janair Jackson back in October, and 
I believe this too wholeheartedly is leading women is probably the hardest thing to do. A group of women, especially young women, it's, it's different. I can't describe it, but trying to motivate and lead a group of women is particularly challenging. Mm -hmm. So you do have to kind of adjust, especially when you had been, you know, 28 years in the army where, you know, you're, you're right. It's like more mission based and you tell someone to do something, they do it. Not that that's not the case in the VWO program, but there's definitely some personal. And if it makes you feel at ease, pretty much everyone who has worked with you that was in VWO, other cadets only have great things to say about you. And so everyone truly does, even though you might've been hard on us. <laughs> During your tenure <laughs> as deputy commandant, um, we all appreciate that. And it has helped us develop into whether we were military officers or even leaders in the civilian sector. It's all led to us being um, successful women. Mm -hmm. And we owe that to you. A lot of, a lot of credit to you as well for well, that mentorship. Well, thank you. Thank you. I've always felt that you know, it's tempting to set the bar low mm -hmm. because you know somebody can get over the bar if you set it low, right? Mm -hmm. And and it's tempting because you think it will encourage them if they get over the bar. But I think that it's a mistake to underestimate the people you're leading, mm -hmm. that you should set the, the bar as high as you think you can get away with it. Yeah and encourage them, they'll look at that and go, I can't get over that bar. But you encourage them, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. You know, take a shot at it. Let's, let's figure out how you get over this bar. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's how you develop people, mm -hmm. is by challenging them, encouraging them to meet those challenges mm -hmm. and so forth, as opposed to making it easy and they feel good, okay, I accomplished mm -hmm. that. But how hard was it? It wasn't that mm -hmm. hard. You know, anybody could have accomplished that. Yeah. So it's just kind of a, a little mm -hmm. different way of approaching it, I guess. Yeah. And especially at the college level, it is an opportunity to try and sometimes fail. But that doesn't mean you're always going to fail. Right. You know, you learn from your failures. So if you don't succeed the first time, you can keep trying and then the gratitude you get from when you do succeed is gonna feel that that much right. better so that's right yeah yeah so I do have one or two more questions for you after you kind of left your position as deputy commandant now that you're kind of in more of the full swing of retirement what do you do to keep yourself busy I also know I've seen that you still are very involved with Mary Baldwin as well, campus things. I've seen you on their story. So I know you're involved in the community. Do you mind sharing like what you do to keep yourself integrated into the community, whether that's Mary Baldwin or Stan itself? Well, I, I do stay busy doing a variety of mm -hmm. different things. I'm very active in the Veterans of Foreign Wars and in, in working with veterans in the local area. And that takes a lot of my time. And not surprisingly, you know, I've wound up with leadership positions within the Veterans <laughs> of Foreign Wars and, and so on. I, because I'm a historian, I love military history, I do some research as well. And I published a few articles, not as many as I should have written, but anyway, I published a few articles and I'm working on a few. And specifically, what I've been working on is local African-American military service. And I got into that because the VFW post that I joined was the historic 
all black posts. So Stanton has two posts. That's mm-hmm. a, a function of, of history and so forth. Mm-hmm. And after World War II, the black veterans, when they came home from their World War II service, they weren't allowed to join the other posts. So they formed their own. Mm-hmm. And, and so years ago, when I joined the VFW, I happened to join that one. And then I had the opportunity to interview some of the World War II veterans mm-hmm. that were members of the post before they passed away. And I started collecting data, and I just became really fascinated by this concept of individuals who served the nation faithfully and honorably and with a great deal of pride in their service, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that at the time they they didn't have full civil rights. It's just, to me, it's an astonishing story. And so five years ago, that was the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. I did a project where I created a database of all of the local men that served in World War I. I found over 400 of them wow. from this area that served in World War I. I'm now working on World War II. I have about 800 men and about 11 women from this local area who served. And what I'm really trying to do is not just identify them and find their names and put it in Mm -hmm. the database, but I'm trying to define what their service was like. What units did they serve in? How did the nation use them? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, in the course of that, for example, with the World War II project I'm doing, Stanton has Tuskegee Airmen, who was a pilot, and he's, he's, well-known, you know, mm-hmm. for having been a, a pilot and having been shot down and, and that sort of thing. But since then, I've discovered about six other men who are also Tuskegee Airmen, but they were grounds crew mm-hmm. people. Not as well-known, but they should be recognized. Yeah. The same thing with the Monford Point M- Marines. There are about seven guys from this local area who went through Montford Point and became Marines. And mm-hmm. several of them served in combat in the Pacific, even though supposedly they weren't allowed to, mm-hmm. but they did. You know, So collecting these stories, trying to gain as much information as possible and, and creating this, this big picture of how these people from the local area served and so on, is very important. The other part of military history research that I do is local (laughs) women. Mm -hmm. And you've probably seen me post about some of the Mary Baldwin women Mm -hmm. who served in World War I and in World War II. So long before V-Will came along Mm -hmm. and we had a pipeline for developing military personnel and so forth, there Mm -hmm. were women who signed up. Some of them were officers, some of them were enlisted, and so forth. And I just think their story needs to be told. So so I work on that. Um, So those sorts of things keep me busy. I've gotten very active in my church as a leader. (laughs) 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 And and I am getting more active with Mary Baldwin. I kind of took a step back for a period of time Mm -hmm. for about, what, a about a six, seven year period and so forth. But although Mary Baldwin has changed by going co-ed and I'm still sad about that, I'm not fully reconciled to that change. I have had the opportunity to meet with new leadership over at Mary Baldwin and and I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm pleased with, with the new leadership and so forth. And I think it's very important that even though Mary Baldwin may be co it still is predominantly women mm-hmm. at Mary Baldwin. It still is a place where women have an opportunity to develop and flourish. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to keep that going. Yeah. Yeah. So. And as, so I'm getting my major or my master's in leadership in higher education and I think what people don't realize is how difficult it is to running a a college or university is pretty much like running a business. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging to stay afloat, especially now because of 
just there's like a lack of confidence in what a degree can give you nowadays, as well as there's like this impending enrollment cliff that's coming based on the drop in birth rates during the recession in 2008. So all of those families that, you know, had less children, now all of those children are about to be of college age. So there's substantially less college, typical college age students that are going to be enrolling in college. So it is a challenge. And I do think a lot of us, while we're sad that Mary Baldwin did go co-ed, I can understand why they potentially went that way. And you make a good point of like, you still have the VWO program. There's still the majority of students are women and it still gives opportunities to those students as well to grow and develop. And so, right. Well, you know, as I said, I, I took a step back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I also think particularly with with new leadership on board, Mm -hmm. that we alumni, we need to engage. If we want Mm -hmm. to see the kinds of things happening at Mary Baldwin that are important to us, if we want to see Mary Baldwin continue to be a place where young women are developed and have an opportunity to flourish and so forth, then we need to be engaged and we need to show the administration and the trustees that it's important to us Mm -hmm. and that we want to help. And so I would encourage Mary Baldwin's alumni, many of whom took steps back like I did, you know, to to come back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I definitely want to get more involved and... I'm very much interested in coming back to the Stanton area after I finish my master's program. I don't know, kind of like what you said when you were here for a few weeks and you were like, wow, this feels like home. Uh, Yeah, I just, I love this area and I'm very much like considering coming back to Stanton, whether I end up working at Mary Baldwin or somewhere nearby, you know, whatever I got to do to pay the bills, but... Yeah, I'm definitely kind of in that mindset of where I want to come back to this area because it does mean a lot to me. And I do appreciate the lifestyle here. It's a little bit slower paced than Mm -hmm. Northern Virginia. Not that I don't like George Mason in Northern Virginia, but that traffic. Yeah, that traffic really really is testing me every time I visit my sister and my nephew and my mom. I'm like, oof, every time I drive back. So, but yeah, but yeah, that's, that's really kind of wraps it up. Do you, I guess I do have one more question that we kind of hit on, uh, a while ago obviously Mary Baldwin has gone co-ed a lot of there are a lot of women's colleges who have gone co-ed and some that have been on the brink of closing but have reopened and remained a women's college such as Sweetbriar do you think there's still a viable future for women's colleges I'm not sure how to answer that to Break it down into into parts. One, I think there is absolutely still a need for women's colleges. Mm-hmm. But the reason so many women's colleges have gotten into trouble and mm-hmm. have had to go co-ed is that the general public doesn't believe that yeah. there's a need for women's colleges. Mm-hmm. So you have to overcome that in order to get... To get the students to come. Mm -hmm. One of the factors in Mary Baldwin's decision to go co-ed was based on the fact that when high school girls were filling out the SAT form or whatever, and they were asked, would they consider a woman's college? Only 3% said that they would. Mm -hmm. And from talking to some of the trustees, I think that they felt if they declared Mary Baldwin as being co-ed, that it wouldn't change the 
the demographics of the student body very much mm-hmm. because men wouldn't come anyway. That's what they're thinking. <laughs> but that it opened up recruitment to that 97% mm-hmm. that said, no, we won't consider a woman's college. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we're not a woman's college anymore. Mm-hmm. You see? And <clears throat> so I don't know how you overcome that. Mm-hmm. You know, when I came here as a student back in the 70s, going to a woman's college was very normal. Yeah. It is now abnormal. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to change public attitudes, and I don't know how you really do that. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the established women's colleges, the Seven Sisters and yeah. so forth, they have large endowments. Mm-hmm. They can weather the storms. They will continue. Yeah. And they have, you know, Wellesley, Bryn Mawr, mm-hmm. Barnard, Barnard yeah. and so forth. They have these reputations mm-hmm. that will continue to attract students mm-hmm. to come. So I think that those women's colleges will survive. Mm-hmm. But I don't know about yeah. the, the few, how many are left? What, 35, something uh, like that? Yeah, a little over 30. And I think some of those aren't going to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with the enrollment cliff coming up. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. I, I think there is this weird stigma or bias against what going to a women's college looks like. And just <laughs> different stereotypes that people have that come to mind that aren't necessarily accurate. And so that I think that's kind of one of the right. reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to highlight all the amazing things that hopefully I'll start. I need to work harder on lining up interviews with alum from other women's colleges, but kind of giving a platform to show that there are some really fun experiences when going to a women's colleges and you're not really missing mm-hmm. out on anything comparatively if anything you're putting yourself in like a great position to develop yourself so yeah hopefully you know one interview at a time we can hopefully change the narrative and you know if maybe Greta Gerwig would do an interview or two (laughs) about going to to a women's college give some more publicity to it uh, that would be beneficial too (laughs) <laughs> just an idea yep <laughs> yep well i appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me this has been a really wonderful conversation i've learned a lot of things about you that i didn't know as well as mary baldwin which has been very cool so thank you so much well thank you for having me all right that's it Thanks for listening to the All Girls School podcast. But before class is over, please take a moment to subscribe or leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts. If you enjoy video content, head over to our YouTube channel at All Girls School Podcast, where you can watch and listen to each episode. You can also follow us on Instagram at All Girls School Podcast, and you can email us questions, stories, and more at theallgirlschoolpodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Class is dismissed.